In this episode of Real Christianity, we learn why so many people in the church are legalists and what that term really means. But more than that, we learn how to properly view the law and how it is intended to drive us to grace. Ultimately, don't miss this essential portion of Romans. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge. Today's episode is titled Romans 3, 19 through 20. Are you a legalist? Now, as you know, this show is an audio and video ministry of relearn.org. If you're watching the video recording of this episode, please be sure to subscribe or follow along for more biblical content. If you're listening from Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, thank you for your faithful listenership. Big question for you, though. Do you follow Relearn on Instagram or YouTube? Uh, and do you follow me on Twitter? If you don't, I'd love to have you guys on the journey. We are putting out resources and content every single day. It would be great to have you there. Folks, I also have a big announcement, an idea for you. Christmas is coming, and you are collecting everyone's addresses to mail them your family Christmas card. Why don't you mail them the gospel with your Christmas card or just mail them the gospel separately? Uh, you can do either of these options at mailthegospel.org. For example, Veronica and I will be including one of our beautiful gospel tracks from mailthegospel.org in our Christmas card this year. But you can also just go to mailthegospel.org and just enter the addresses of your family and friends, and we will mail the gospel to them for you. And again, you can do this anonymously or personalized. So again, don't miss the opportunity to mail the gospel this Christmas season. Just go to mailthegospel.org. Dot org. All right, guys, we're going to jump right in today. We finally reached the conclusion of Paul's coordinated multi-chapter argument against legalism. And this section of scripture was from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 3, verse 20, which we will finish today. And the Apostle Paul has systematically stripped away any redemptive hope from the Jews and the Gentiles in them being justified by works of obedience or by works of the law. Paul has laid the groundwork to present the great Reformation doctrine, sola fide, which is justification by faith alone. So we are sinners and we cannot be found righteous before God or be justified before God by our works of obedience. We do need an alien righteousness that is given to us through faith. And so this is really setting the groundwork for what Paul's going to be talking about in chapter 3, 4, and 5, which is just a beautiful momentum that moves in through the book of Romans. And so over the last few weeks, we read Paul's last-ditch effort to demonstrate humanity's inability to be justified. In these two episodes, we talked about the doctrine of total depravity, uh, they're back-to-back -back episodes if you haven't listened to them. There, in those uh, passages of Scripture, Paul made it abundantly clear that not only can we not justify ourselves through obedience, but our fallen state is so tragic and it's so deep uh, that we aren't even interested in God. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Uh, we're essentially God-haters. We're so corrupted in sin that without the regeneration of our heart, we hate God, we hate others, and we love self. And so again, these are just the basic biblical facts that make up the doctrine of total depravity. Again, those episodes are essential 
Christian doctrine. If you haven't got a chance to listen to them, please go back and do so. Now, as I said in earlier episodes, total depravity doesn't mean that humanity is as bad as it could be. No, total depravity means that man's fallen state is total. It's uh, There's not an area within his being that is not infected with the nature of his depravity. And so his entire being, his spirit, his mind, his thoughts, his desire, his will, his words, his action, all of these things have been depraved by sin. So more than that, we learned that the source of man's depravity is this spiritually dead heart or the spiritually dead soul. In other words, if the heart is dead, dead in sin, then everything that comes forth from that heart will also be dead. Deadness will come out. We talked about because the heart is dead, the mouth becomes the sewage uh, outlet of, uh, what did I call it? Satan's sewer, right? It just comes from the heart and out of the mouth. And so what's the passage from uh, Jesus that he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so there's a direct correlation from the words that come from your mouth and the state of your heart. Again, we talked about this in previous episodes. Uh, This is, we're, we're in this place, this state of mankind, because we're born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And this is important for you to grasp as a Christian, to have a solid view of doctrine and theology and the mechanics of the gospel. And we're dead because our souls are separated. We know that physical death is separation from the body, from the soul. Spiritual death is separation of the soul from God. And so our souls, when we're born, are separated from the spirit of life. It's why the Holy Spirit is not indwelling in us prior to our conversion. Because he's not dwelling in us, he is separated from us. We are dead. We need to be born again. And we're born again by the regeneration of the heart. And what makes us alive is the spirit of God coming and uniting together, resurrecting our spirit and soul, giving us a new heart. And uh, this is why Jesus would say things in John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So based on the words of Paul in this letter to the Romans, we have to conclude that without a spiritual resurrection, without being born again, the regeneration of the heart, the life-giving power of Christ, no man will ever seek God, let alone be able to be justified by his obedience to the law. He's not even interested in God. Um, Now, as we get into today's text, Paul, as a Jew, is expecting and anticipating his reader's opposition to the words that he said in the previous section. And again, the previous section was on total depravity, was talking about how utterly broken mankind is, and it was applied in a universal way. And so, as we know, self-love is blinding. It's blinding. And Paul expects that his audience is going to count themselves as as an exception to what he just said. Essentially, he expects the Jews to say something like, yeah, some people are that bad, but not me, not us. We, We love to be the exception to these doctrines of depravity. As a result, Paul, what he does here in this text that we're going to read here shortly is that he slams the door of his argument with these two universal truths that we will be studying. It really gives them no option but to see themselves within the jurisdiction of the words that Paul just spoke. 
And so we're going to read Romans chapter 3, 19 through 20. And it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay, so first, Paul makes this logical observation. When the law speaks, he says, it speaks to those who are within the law's jurisdiction. Uh, Let me give you an example. Germans don't care about Arizona law here in my state because Arizona law doesn't speak to them in a sense that it doesn't have jurisdiction over them. And so now every Jew who's hearing this when he's talking about the law would agree with Paul's statement, which is now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. No Jew's going to shake their head at that reality because they knew as Jews that they were under God's law and it did have authority upon them. But then Paul tells us why, which is nicely marked with a purpose clause. And if you've been following this podcast for any amount of time, you know that when you see the words, so that, in a passage of scripture, it is a purpose clause. It is about to tell you, bop, 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 the purpose of that passage of scripture. So let's read it all together here. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So there is two purposes here, and these two reasons are separated by a coordinating conjunction, which we know as the word and, right? It says, so that, number one, every mouth may be closed, and number two, all the world may become accountable to God. So a coordinating conjunction essentially is an important part to study your Bible because when you see these these conjunctions, you know that that it's saying that both purposes are of equal weight. They're not chronological. They're not hierarchical. They are equal. And so God has two reasons in this passage of scripture. Again, I want to read it one more time. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed, point number one, and all the world may become accountable to God. So the first reason was to shut the mouths of men. What what I want to point out here is that the passage is intended to eliminate man's boasting. It's to demonstrate their failure to meet its demands and really have no room for man to glory before God. That that really is, the law is the great equalizer of men and that we're not able to boast because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and all of us need to be justified not by our own obedience, by keeping the law because we can't keep the law. We know that James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, any man who keeps the whole law but breaks it in one point is guilty of all of it. That's James 2.10. And that passage of scripture is that we've all broken the law, so we we have no room to boast. And it's intended to shut our mouths so that we cannot boast. And if you stood before God in a court case, which we all will, men would have no verbal defense uh, or remarks against their unrighteousness. That's essentially the language that we're seeing here. It's kind of a court case language here, a forensic look. Psalm 130 and gives us that court case style imagery when it says, quote, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Again, showing that you would be standing before the Lord in judgment, and you'd have 
no room to stand. It's I, I think about this moment of Job where he tries to question God and blame God at the end of Job, and God gives him two full chapters of absolute reasons why he's God and Job is not. And the response from Job is Job putting his hand over his mouth and saying, I am vile. And so this is really the intention of the law is to show that you cannot be justified by it. And so the second reason is that all the world may become accountable to God. And that is that all people are equally under the condemnation and equally in need of justification. And the term can also be translated, maybe in your passage of scripture, may become guilty instead of may become accountable, which again, it just emphasizes this forensic court case style imagery that is important for us as Christians to understand that there is a legal reality to the gospel that will really help us nurture that relationship with Christ. And so without Christ as our representative for righteousness, all of us will be found guilty. And that's where Paul's heading here. So again, we have to remember this is not common for the Jew to be lumped in with the condemnation of the Gentiles. And so they are going to be struggling to see themselves as equally condemned with the Gentiles before the law of God. We've seen this if you've been following along uh, through this Romans series, but this is a uh, something to note on how a Jewish person would receive this letter at the time of Paul's writing. And even though the apostles has demonstrated that God is impartial over and over and over again between Romans chapter 1 and chapter 3, again, it's so difficult for them to believe that they are equally accountable before God on the tenets of the law by which no man can keep Jew or Gentile. So let's move to verse 20 here, and we'll, we'll work through this passage, and then I'll wrap up in a little bit with what I think is a very clear conclusion about legalism. Okay, verse 20 says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So this is probably the clearest statement in scripture against legalism. There, there is no way for it to be misunderstood. You cannot earn or even contribute to your righteous standing before God by your obedience to the law. This just not, it's not possible. And this passage, again, I'm going to read it because by works of the law, uh, you could change that out with obedience or religious works, no flesh will be justified. You cannot justify yourself by works of the law. So to the religious man, this should be the most terrifying passage of scripture in the entire New Testament. You cannot earn it. That's basically what Paul is making very clear. You cannot earn it. And this fact should really leave every Catholic, every Mormon, every Jehovah's Witness, every Muslim, every moralist who believes that their obedience earns them salvation or keeps them saved or contributes to their righteous standing before God, whatever the case may be, it should uh, really leave them utterly hopeless and crying out for mercy, which is the purpose of the law, which we'll talk about shortly. And so it's an impossible and foolish endeavor to work your way to God's favor. And it's actually exactly what separates Christianity from every other religion on earth. The gospel is not do, the gospel is done. It's been done by Christ. You cannot do anything to render yourself justified before God outside of Christ. And so this is not also a one-off theological reality either. This is 
not a Romans only or even a Paul only doctrine. We see this throughout the entire uh, entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, actually. So works-based righteousness is condemned all over the New Testament. I am going to give you a handful of passages just so we can reference that. Galatians 2.17 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Titus 3, 5 through 7 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us and righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, all right, guys, it's important for you to note that the law wasn't incapable of saving. It was. It was capable of saving. It was just impossible for fallen man to be justified by it. It was impossible for fallen man to keep the law perfectly. And I say this because I want you to know that your justification through Christ was actually earned through Jesus's righteousness and his obedience to the law, meaning that Jesus did keep the law perfectly. He did obey perfectly. And so the law is capable of justifying, but it's not capable of justifying those of us who have been marred with the sin-stained seed of Adam. And what I mean by that is that Jesus was not born of the sin-stained seed of Adam. He was born of a virgin, of the seed of the Spirit of God, which made him like Adam in the sense that he was born without sin, but unlike Adam, because he actually maintained his sinlessness and continued on through his ministry completely without sin, dying for our sins and not his own sins. And because the wages of sin is death, the reason that Jesus could not remain dead is because he was sinless. And so he was resurrected uh, as a result. And so this is deep gospel mechanic theology that you need to know. Uh, Romans 5, 9 says, For as by one man's disobedience, speaking to Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. And so this is also why Jesus would say things in, for example, Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so, in other words, Jesus brought about justification by fulfilling the law. He kept the law perfectly. He didn't abolish the law because the law is still here, having jurisdiction over those who are sinning against the law. The law is not gone. It is here, and it still has authority over men. But he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the demands of the law. And Paul reiterates this in Galatians 4. 4 through 5. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I'm going to give you one more passage of scripture that's so important for you to grasp, just to see the greater picture of 
the forensic side of the gospel, that Jesus comes and fulfills the demands of the law on our behalf. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So again, perfect obedience to the law has always been the only means to justify a person before God. But no man but Christ could produce this perfect obedience, which again makes the gospel so much more special. And as I said in earlier sermons, Christ did not only die for us, paying for our sins on the cross, but he also lived for us, meaning he kept the righteous requirement, earning the righteousness that he has to give to us, imputing to us through faith. And so he keeps the law on our behalf. So the reality is when you think about it, Christ didn't only die for us, he also lived for us. And that's the two sides of the gospel. We give our sin to Christ on the cross and he gives us his righteousness through faith. And so this is 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so what is the conclusion of the whole matter? And this is key. I want you guys to pay attention, write this one down, memorize it, put it on your fridge, tell someone about it. It's a simple truth that we can draw from this entire passage of scripture from Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verses 20. It's this, a low view of the law always leads to legalism. I'm going to say that again. A low view of the law always leads to legalism. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. When we don't grasp the impossible demand of the law, what do we do? We trust in our own ability to earn salvation through good behavior. When we have a low view of the law, we essentially say to ourselves, I got this. I can do this. A low view of the law will lead you to legalism. If you think that you can accomplish and meet the righteous requirement of the law, you have a low view of the law. The law is so big, it's like a boulder the size of a city that's going to crush you. You cannot keep it. You already failed in the fact that you are listening to me tell you this now, that you already are a sinner. And so when we think that we can accomplish the demands of the law, we also do what? We eliminate a need for a savior. So again, a low view of the law always leads to legalism. It leads to this attempt to try to justify yourself through obedience, through moralism, through righteous works, when in reality, you cannot earn your righteous standing before God without the righteousness of Christ. And so ironically, the very purpose of the law was to show man what? His, his wretchedness, his inability. And the end of verse 20 says this, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law becomes this straight edge to show how crooked we are. It becomes a mirror to our moral life. In Jesus's ministry, what does he constantly do? He constantly magnifies the law. He doesn't minimize the law. He doesn't 
tell people that you could probably keep this if you just try harder. No, he, he says things like, you have heard that it was said that you should not murder. But I say that if you hate somebody in your heart, you've already murdered them within yourself. Or, or he'll say things like, um, you've heard that it is said to not commit adultery. But I say that if you even lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. These are statements that Jesus is saying, the law is not just the outside, but it's also the inside. So he's elevating the authority and jurisdiction of the law that he's saying, it's not just even what you do, it's even what you think. And you can't keep that. And it actually sends people to go, my goodness, if that's the case, who could be found righteous? Who, who can be found able to keep the law? And Jesus goes, yeah, that's the point. Nobody can, only me, only Jesus Christ. And so this is essential that Jesus is magnifying the law to drive us to himself, to drive us to grace. And so Jerry Bridges once said, quote, God's law as a rule of life is not opposed to grace. Rather, used in the right sense, it is the handmaid of grace. Or to use an analogy, it is like a sheepdog that keeps driving the sheep back into the fold of grace when we stray out into the wilderness of works, end quote. So again, the conclusion I say is this, a low view of the law will lead to legalism. A high view of the law will always lead to grace. When you have a high view of the law, when you realize how big it is, how impossible it is, how huge it is, how you cannot keep it, you will always be driven back to grace. And this is essential when we share the gospel with people. We need to afflict people with the law to show them their impossible ability to uphold its demands so that we can heal them with the healing ointment of the gospel. That's when the gospel must come in is when they realize they cannot keep the law. And so it's this grace in Jesus Christ when the gospel truly sings and we start to see why the gospel is actually good news. So guys, I hope that was helpful for you to understand the gospel just a little bit better. And this book of Romans, wow, it's been an incredible blessing to my my own personal walk with the Lord as I've had the chance to study. Because when I prepare a, a sermon that I deliver on Sunday and then deliver here on this podcast, there's so much that I have to leave out. I have to really sum up what I've learned and put it into 30 or 40 minutes. And so this has been just an absolute blessing to do that, to serve you in this way. And so I hope this was edifying for you, that you're continuing to mature in the gospel and that you're understanding the beauty of, of really Jesus Christ and the glory of God. And so if you are a regular listener to this podcast, would you guys do me a favor? You don't need to write something, but would you just leave a review and you just need to tap the stars in your podcast app. If you do write something, I will read it. It is encouraging. We have over 6,000 reviews on this podcast because we've had so many listeners that have been faithful. Those reviews really do help the exposure of this show and more people can find what we're doing because of that. Also, would you consider sharing with a friend, taking them through the Roman series? And so I would love to have more individuals listening here. We've already had people write me and telling me that they've actually think they might've been born again through listening to this Roman series and that they're understanding gospel mechanics and theology for the very first time. And so we would love to have more people on the journey. 
On that note, my name is Dale Partridge. This is Real Christianity, and we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Also, would you consider leaving a review? You don't need to write anything. Just tap the stars in your podcast app. But if you would write a review, we will read it. Real Christianity is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, and of course, at relearn.org. You can also follow along on social media. Just search for relearn.org or Dale Partridge on just about every social media platform. Lastly, if you feel led to support our ministry financially as we fight to bring the church back to the Bible, you can always do that at relearn.org forward slash donate. 